From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. The heroic anti-government protest in Iran is in its fourth week. The protests were sparked by the death of the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman, Mahsa Jian Amini. She was detained by the so-called morality police on September 13th. Three days later, she died while in coma. Her family said that according to eyewitnesses, Massa was tortured in the van after her arrest, then tortured at the police station for half an hour, then hit on her head before she collapsed. Massa's funeral in the Kurdish city of Saqiz became a site for expression of collective anger and defiance. Thousands participated in her funeral. Some women took off their scarves, waving them in the air shouting Jin Jian Azadi, or Woman Life Freedom, and mourners chanted, Death to the Dictator. A picture of Amini's gravestone was later published on social media that reads, You didn't die, your name will become a symbol. And it did. Her death ignited women-led protests that spread to far corners of the country, and Woman Life Freedom has become the enduring symbol of this historic uprising. The Iranian regime and its security forces have responded by cracking down violently. As of October 11th, the Iran-based Society to Support Children reported that 28 children have been killed during the protest, most in Sistan and Baluchistan province. According to human rights groups, more than 150 people have been killed and more than 110 students have been taken into custody. The press freedom organization, the Committee to Protect Journalists, has so far documented the names of 35 journalists who've been arrested since the start of the protest. The government has also curbed internet access to make it difficult for protesters to communicate and to post videos on social media. Shahram Agamir spoke with Nima Tutkabuni about the ongoing protest in Iran. Nima is a PhD student in sociology at John Hopkins University. He was a student activist in Iran during the 2000s and helped lead an organization called Students for Equality and Freedom. It's been about four weeks since the protests started in Iran, and the form of the protest has changed a little bit over the last four weeks. In the first few weeks, there were many more larger protests in central areas, but now it's a little bit more a spontaneous and a sporadic protest that happens everywhere. It's much more widespread, but less concentrated, I can say. The protests have also been spread to other areas, actually new surprising areas like high schools. And just yesterday, in southwestern Iran, in the province of Khuzestan, the Old Ridge province, some of the old workers went on a strike. And that's the latest event that a lot of people are actually very hopeful for. And then last week, kind of a turning point in the protest was that in many universities in Tehran, Sharif University and Vikabi University, the students also got involved. And in case of Sharif University, they faced brutal suppression from the police and security forces. And that was followed by involvement of high school students, which was surprising and also, in my view, very exciting. Nima, can you remind us of the events that sparked the current wave of protests in Iran 
In Iran, there is a notorious police force that has been around for almost two decades, and it's called the morality police, or I think the literal translation is the morality patrols. And their job is to enforce the Islamic traditional dress code on everyone, but the main target is the woman. And they have the authority to arrest women and men too, as I said, but the main target is women and take it with themselves to the so-called re-educational centers when the women are taught how to observe the correct dress code. And over the last few years, this has been actually a very contentious issue in Iran. There have been a lot of clashes between people and the morality police, and sometimes these clashes have got violent. This time, a very young woman from Kurdistan, her name was Gina or Mahsa Amini. She was arrested by this morality police in Tehran. Apparently, according to what her family says, she was beaten before being arrested. And then hours later, the family realized that she has ended up in a coma in, in hospital. And a few days after this event, she passed in the hospital. And her death became a spark of a wave of protest, first in Kurdistan and then across Iran, in protest of morality police, but much larger in protest of compulsory hijab, and then even much larger in, in protest of the general political situation in Iran. It, it started from the issue of morality police and then it spread to the issue of, of compulsory hijab, and then eventually people started chanting slogans against the regime, and they basically demanded an overthrow of the regime entirely. Nima, on this issue of quote-unquote morality, after coming to power in the wake of 1979 revolution in Iran, the regime started its top-down Islamization of the society, public space, and individual behavior. The aim was to produce quote-unquote Islamic man and Islamic woman. Workplaces and schools became sites of moral prescription, and segregation within public institutions became the general order of the day. Women's bodies became the site of contestation for the new social order imposed by the regime, and compulsory veiling was designed to give religious identity to Iranian women. Many laws that had favored women under the Shah, such as the Family Protection Law, were abrogated. Iranian women wore the brunt of these misogynist policies and practices by the state. But as a male born and raised in Iran, how did you see these policies impacting women? What were your observations? And what was your life like under a state that imposed such harsh measures of social control over the population as a whole? You correctly emphasized that as a male, my observation would be, of course, radically different from our observation of a woman. As you said, creation of the Islamic man, Islamic women has been at the center of the ideology of the Islamic Republic since the revolution, but it has failed. I remember when I was a teenager, pop music was banned, wearing t-shirts, if the sleeves were too short, was banned. In high school, for example, I remember having some hairstyles, a little bit unconventional hairstyles that could cause you trouble and so on. The morality police can also stop men too. And I know a lot of men who have also been stopped. Everything that I have experienced, living a life where you cannot freely choose the music that you listen to, what you, what you wear, and obviously in our social relation to the women around me at the school, 
friends, co-workers, partners, everything, all of them have been really massively shaped or reshaped by this Islamic code. But I think everything that I and every man in the Iranian society have experienced is nothing compared to what women go through. As you said, their body is always a battlefield for these people. That's where they want to control the most. They easily allow themselves to stop women, harass them. For example, in governmental buildings, if you're not wearing the proper hijab, they simply would not let you in or they simply would not do what you ask them to do, what they have to be doing. That's the same in schools, in universities. I remember in my university, University of Tehran, there was someone whose job was to walk around and tell women that their hijab is not appropriate. And obviously, on top of all of this day-to-day harassments, the morality police was always a big source of fear for every woman that lived in Iran. It was something that was meant to show the presence of Islamic Republic and its brutal suppressing force everywhere at any corner of the society. But I think this movement actually shows that those days are over. I don't think that they will be able to enforce those Islamic codes as they used to. That's a very good point. In fact, women have been pushing the envelope over the last few decades. As a result, obviously, what was considered a proper hijab back in the 1980s, it is different from today's. But then again, there is an element of capriciousness and arbitrariness in enforcing these rules and denigrating and humiliating women. Yes, obviously, you emphasize an important point. There is an arbitrariness involved in this process, and that basically gives the, a lot of power and authority and discretion to whoever is in that morality police van. They can stop people whenever they want. For example, I was once stopped by them. I was with my sister. We were walking. We were not wearing anything unconventional, neither I nor her. My sister and I also look similar. It's not that hard to guess that we are brother and sister when we walk together. But then this guy just felt that he can stop us and he can harass us. And that's what he did. So yes, the Islamic Republic has had this policy of allowing its people, its security forces to have a lot of discretion in what they do, because they know very well that the only way that you can actually keep security forces satisfied in any dictatorial system is that to allow them actually to enjoy power over normal people. This takes us back to the question of dignity and the struggle for dignity. Women are acting as the agents of change in the current protest, and the liberation of the population as a whole is invariably tied to women's liberation and gender equality. How do you explain this development? In Iran, secularization was kind of a top-down process before the revolution. In Iran, in Turkey, in many other countries, the societies were traditional, and while women were subjected to traditional patriarchal rules, but it was the government or the new, more Western-style elites that wanted to bring secularism to the society. And that had a lot of backlash, both in Iran and in other societies, that the more traditional part of the society see the secularization as an attempt of the elite to basically dispossess them of the moral codes, the family structure, etc., etc. And that has been actually one of the drives of this very Islamic dress code and social codes after the revolution. But I think what we have seen in Iran over the last 40 years is that women have changed this dynamic, has made it a bottom-up process. Women have been able to gain a lot of economic independence in Iran because they have been able to gain a lot of education. 
And as a result, they have been in a better position to say no to hierarchy and authority. And what has been built over the last 40 years has manifested itself in this process. And what has been over the last 40 years is that women wanted change. And this change this time is very indigenous change. It's very different from top-down projects that many secular governments in the Islamic world have always wanted to implement. That's something that women themselves want, and this demand is coming from inside the society. It's very indigenous to society. It's actually coming from kind of all different classes and layers of the society. It's not only limited to, let's say, upper middle class women or wealthy women or anything like that. Nima, the protests have taken place across the country in more than a hundred cities and in all 31 provinces in the country. These are diverse and geographically widespread locations. Are we witnessing uniformity in the slogans chanted by the protesters? And what are the key demands articulated by the protesters? Well, uniformity can never be achieved, but there is a lot of homogeneity, I can say, in the slogans. They are almost the same. The main slogan, as you know, is women, life, freedom, or women, life, liberty. I think. But there are many other protests that target the Islamic Republic. Death to dictator, we don't want Islamic Republic. There are some protests that actually say we don't want any tyrants, whether that be a Shah or Supreme Leader. But I can say the main slogans have been around the issue of women and also about the issue of dictatorship. These are the two things that have been heard in the slogans and in the protests much more than anything else. And I think they are actually two central pieces of this protest. Let's focus on these slogans. There are three slogans that stand out for me. One is woman, life, freedom, zan, zendegi, azadi. The second one is if all of us are not united, mm -hmm. every one of us will be annihilated. Let's start with the first slogan whose origin seems to date back to March 8, 2006. This was according to a writing by um, Kurdish-Iranian academic Sardar Saadi, when this slogan was declared by Kurdish women's freedom movement in Turkey. Later on, the um, Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, and its leader, Abdullah Ocalan, called the slogan the magic formula. Undoubtedly, it's a beautiful slogan, uh, simple, but at the same time, ambiguous. To be fair, such an ambiguity is not uncommon in uprisings of this nature. This slogan seems to capture the vision of this protest movement and the world that is to be built after the collapse of this regime. What is your understanding of it? It's a beautiful slogan for sure. And I think it really symbolizes this movement. Women, life, freedom. Well, women are praying the central Lord, they are the main agents. They are asking freedom. And life is, I think, a symbol of what these people think that they have been deprived of because of the moral and social code, as well as many other things, the political suppression, the economic hardship, etc., etc. In other words, they are chanting, they are saying that what we want, a normal life and a normal life that everyone can live with freedom, and this everyone actually should include women, because women are the ones who have been deprived of normal life much more than men. So it's a beautiful slogan. It really encapsulates what these protesters want. But as every slogan is, as you said, it's ambiguous. It cannot really guarantee that this demands will be, be really met and built in the world after the collapse of the regime. But it just shows a certain wish and a certain demand. 
And I think it's really necessary to analyze this movement as any other movement, that there are demands that are being chanted, there are demands that are being asked, but between what is asked and what will be or can be implemented or achieved, there's always a gap. And that's a gap that, well, now no one is that much wary of, but I think it's worth diving into it and pondering about it. What about the universality of this slogan? I don't mean it necessarily at the global level, but within the country itself, this is one element when you're building a hegemony, an hegemonic block that is supposed to represent universal interest of the society. Do you mm-hmm. think this slogan has the ability to create that sense of universality or universal interest in the society? Yes, it has. But what I was trying to say that the slogan itself can be a hegemonic, let's say, title or hegemonic headline for what everyone wants. And yes, you can interpret it as a way that most things that people want are encapsulated in this slogan. In this regard, I think this slogan is doing a perfect job. What I was trying to emphasize is that it's worth going a little bit deeper into this movement and see what is the relationship between this slogan and many, many other demands that are behind the slogans and see if there is a one-to-one match between what people want and what people can achieve or even aspire to achieve. The second slogan appears to stem from the understanding that there are gender, ethnic, regional, and class fault lines in Iran, like other societies, and a united front across all these divisions, a national bloc formed by all subaltern groups is needed to dislodge the regime that has for decades exploited these existing fault lines to create fragmentation among its opponents. How realistic is this strategy? It takes me back to the point that you were just trying to mention about these different interests in the society. Well, I guess there is a lot of hope that this could be a realistic uh, slogan. At least so far, we have not really seen a lot of ethnic conflicts that usually exist in this type of movements. I think I have to say that a lot of people who are protesting against the Islamic Republic inside the country as well as outside the country, to varying degrees, uh, subscribe to some version of a kind of a nationalistic ideology, which has gained some popularity in Iran in reaction to this ultra-Islamic ideology that has been ruling the country over the last 40 years. So there are a lot of nationalistic sentiments that for me is always kind of worrisome. Those nationalistic sentiments have been, not that they have been fully absent, they have been there. You have heard people saying things that you probably wished you didn't hear, but they have been not at the center of the stage. As you said, what has been at the center of the stage has been actually the slogans that are much more uniting. And, and the, the one that you are focusing on is, is one of them. So I think there is really room for hope that this movement could go behind the ethnic conflicts or behind nationalistic sentiments, etc. But as I said, this hope always should be a little bit warranted. I can say there are things that people who are actually involved in this movement, they need to be conscious of and cautious about maybe. Nima, how would you describe the youth who are taking part in this protest What has changed in the past two decades that has made this generation so fearless? I think uh, the fact that there are a lot of young people involved in this movement has been a little bit overemphasized because I think in any political uprising in the world history, young people are always at the front line. And it's kind of natural because if you're young, you are much more fearless. But having said that, 
it is true that the proportion of these protesters who are young are maybe much more than normal. And also they are much younger. It's very natural that college students would fiercely participate in political protests. But coming from the same country and actually being politically active in the same atmosphere when I was a college student, I could not imagine that I would see a day where high school students take off their hijabs, show the middle finger to the picture of the leader of Iran in their classroom and sing a song or chant slogans in high school or throw the principal of the school out. So it is indeed a new thing that these people are much younger and much more militant. And I think the reason is that for many previous generations in Iran, even though we were living under dictatorship, under sanctions, under not very comfortable economic situations, under Islamic social codes, but I think there was a minimum level of economic welfare and some hopes in political change that would keep us a little bit more maybe calm. This new generation have not seen any of this. People who are 20 years now, who are frontline of this protest, they have lived 12 years of their 20 years life, more than half of their life. They have lived it under brutal sanctions and under very dire economic situations. And beside the economic part of it, they have seen only dictatorship and brutal dictatorship. I think it's necessary to emphasize that although Iran has been a dictatorship, unfortunately, since 1953 somehow, but the degree of authoritarianism in the society has not been constant, right? It has been changing. When I was a college student in early 2000s, it was much more political freedom. After 2009 election and, and the grief movement, there was a crackdown. And then I can say since 2009, things have got only worse. So what we could do in universities Iran in, in early 2000s is not doable or even conceivable for these students. So in other words, they have lived most of their life with no political hope, with no economic prospect and under dire economic situations. They have witnessed that anyone around them, especially middle class families, anyone around them who could leave the country has left the country, a lot of emigration. And for that reason, they have a feeling that they have nothing to lose, basically. And I think when people go really angry and do something very brave, in most cases, people at least feel that they have nothing to lose. And I think that's what makes this generation different from previous generations. When we look at how Gina or Mahsa Amini and how her murder actually sparked the current protests in Iran, it reminds us of how the killing of George Floyd triggered the movement of Black Lives Matter in this country and how self-immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi, a poor street vendor, sparked an uprising in Tunisia, and how brutal torture and killing of a young man uh, named Khaled Said by the police became a trigger for the Egyptian uprising in 2011. In all cases, the accumulation of suffering and disaffection had created a powder keg, if you like, that only needed a match to explode. In Iran, we clearly see the fury and rage expressed by the protesters. Can we argue that the current protests in Iran are also fueled by a range of lasting economic and political grievances, as you were just talking about? And if so, what are those grievances? Absolutely. Well, I think maybe we can enumerate them. 
Let's start with the economy. Iran has had an average of zero GDP growth over the last decade, I think from 2011 to 2021. For any modern economy and an economy as size as the Iranian economy, that means a disaster. And I think there have been actually many years that we have had negative growth rate. Inflation is very high. If you talk to anyone in, in Iran, you can easily observe that. You can actually hear from them that the price of very basic necessary goods change almost daily. In fact, it's surprising for me when I talk to my parents, I have no sense of what is expensive and what is not expensive. I've only been living here for nine years. So over the last nine years of my life in the United States, prices have changed so much that if I now go to Tehran and, and if the cab driver wants to charge me a fare, I have no idea if that fare is too low or too high. And then on top of that, there is a high rate of unemployment. I don't really know what is the real unemployment rate, that the official rates are much lower, but I think the official rates are something about 15%. This is the economic problems that are caused by two things, by mismanagement and corruption inside, and of course, by economic sanctions from the United States. Although the sanctions are imposed by the United States, but the Iranian people still see their government responsible for that. Why is that? Well, because I think they have been under this brutal dictatorship for 40 years, and they have been kind of cut off from the world. They don't trust what the government says. And when it comes to the sanctions, even though I think those sanctions are unjust, unlawful, they think that it's their government that is basically triggering the United States with its regional policies. This was only the economic side. I think it's also very important to talk about the political aspect of this too. A lot of Iranian people, not all of them, had a hope in reforming this government when the so-called reformist movement started in 1997. And that movement kind of continued until 2009. And then it was in 2013 when there was an election between the so-called reformist Rouhani and his opponents who were all conservative, the so-called principalists. And a lot of these reformists supported Rouhani and a lot of people actually supported Rouhani. So there was a lot of popular support for this reform movement. Rouhani failed miserably and so did every other reformist who was around them. And I think as a result of all of these failures and, and as a result of absence of any other political alternative inside or outside of the formal politics of Iran, people have just lost hope in any incremental change, lost hope in any reform, even reform in the much broader sense of the term. Reform not only meaning going with the reformists, but just reform more generally. They don't have any hope in the reform. So that adds more fuel to this fury of these people. And I think on top of economic issues, political issues, as I mentioned, social issues have been always an area of contestation between people and the police, and especially between women. And as you correctly made the comparison here, death of Mahs Amini was very similar to death of George Floyd in the United States and in other cases, that when there is a big mass of fuel that is not being really noticed by authorities and by the people, the only thing that can make everyone notice that big fuel is a spark. And that spark was the death of Mahs Amini. That by itself is very telling. I mean, not to belittle the death of a young soul, but the fact that that could actually lead to such massive protest, yes. that by itself is indication 
of a failure of an establishment to fulfill the aspirations and the, the needs of its people. There was a report published by an institute called I can kind of literally translate it to the it's a government institution that observes and studies the status of the Islamic moral code in Iran. And they published a report, I think, early this year. In the report, they say that they are very skeptical about the practicality of this morality police. And they mentioned that many, many of authorities do not want to continue with this morality police because they are aware that the economic situation in country is so bad that people could be triggered by anything and protests could spark. So there were actually at least voices among the authorities that thought that such a thing could happen. But I think the kind of sad and maybe also hopeful reality is that even though they were saying it, they decided to ignore it. And I think the reason that they decided to ignore it is that they underestimated this fury of people, how unsatisfied people are. And it also indicates how detached the state and the regime is from, yes. from the streets, from the sentiments in the streets and the psyche of the people. Iran witnessed major protests in the aftermath of the 2009 elections. There were protests sparked by economic concerns in 2017-2018, as well as 2019. There were also protests over the issue of water shortage last year. All these protests were significant and were brutally crushed by the regime. What are some of the similarities and differences between the current protests and those earlier ones? Well, I think the similarities is that all of these protests have been much more militant than previous waves of protests in Iran. Uh, having the slogan of death to Islamic Republic or no to Islamic Republic. Well, these are the things that people did not dare saying in the street like 15 years ago. So I can say the similarity is that they're all very militant. The dissimilarity is that those protests were mostly in poorer neighborhoods or areas of Iran, in a smaller town or in like poorer neighborhoods in Tehran and larger cities. This protest is kind of widespread. And as you see, one day you hear something is happening in some more affluent neighborhoods in Tehran, some protests. The other day you see that in some poorer neighborhood in Tehran, people come to the street. Someday you hear that the people in the cities like Rasht or Mashhad, kind of large cities, they go on protests. The other day you hear that in Baluchistan and Kurdistan, poorer provincial places, people go out. So it's, this is definitely much more widespread and much more spontaneous too. And in terms of, I think, slogans and demands, as I said, the, the previous wave of protests were mostly, if not solely, about economic issues. As you mentioned, water shortage or the increase of the gas strike in 2019, a spark protest. But in these protests, as we already discussed it, the issue of women, the issue of social freedom, and also the issue of freedom. Compared to 2009 protests, which was, I think, the, the largest wave of protests in Iran since the revolution, people were were chanting, where is my vote? Their demand was to have a fair election. We can discuss whether they were really the leader of the movement or not, but there were at least some figures who could ask people to come out to the streets or, or had statements and, and basically lead people in one way or the other way. There were people who were inside this political system and there were people who actually had run for election. Today, unlike 2009, no one is concerned about election. No one gives any slogan about election. No one talks about an election being fraudulent or not, no one talks about reform. 
and everyone just directly addresses and attacks the regime itself. And that's Nima Tutkaboni speaking with Shahram Agamir about the ongoing protests in Iran. We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I think it's probably way too early and the level of censorship and repression in Iran makes it even more difficult to determine which classes and social groups are participating in the current wave of protests in Iran. Are you able to shed some light on the makeup of these protests? Well, as you said, it's it's too early. I can we have some guesses. I think it's a combination of the a shrinking middle class because of economic issues. Of course, people from lower classes, the working class people are involved too. And as you said, and I just want to emphasize, it's just a guess, it's just a speculation. I think the share of the middle class in this protest is significantly large. And, and I think the reason is obvious, the ones that I mentioned earlier, is that the middle class are the ones who have lost the most politically, and they're, they're the ones who are also losing their middle-class economic status. They are becoming poorer and poorer. They are the poorer people who are taking the biggest hit of this economic crisis. But I think uh, so far, the, the middle-class have enjoyed prosperity, and that level of prosperity would allow them to, to have different life chances and scenarios, for example, be able to emigrate. And they are losing it, and they are basically becoming more like working class over the last few years. On top of that, they have lost any political hope, as I said. The reformist movement was also largely a middle-class-based movement. They have lost that alternative too. And of course, the social code, as always, has been not welcomed by them. Uh, Nimo, the highest number of fatalities in the current wave of protests seem to have been in Baluchistan and Sistan, as well as Kurdistan, where ethnic Kurds and Baluchis have been subjected to ongoing oppression by the regime for more than four decades. September 30th has been uh, termed the Bloody Friday. Amnesty International has reported that 82 Baluchi protesters and bystanders, including children, were killed in a brutal crackdown in Zahedan on that day, and Zahedan in Baluchistan. Kurdistan and its provincial capital have also become a target for the regime's security forces and its revolutionary guards who have been carrying a ruthless campaign against the protesters. It looks like the regime is playing the nationalist card by pushing this false narrative that the unrest among the Kurds and Baluchis Mm -hmm. is driven by separatist agendas. Hence, it's against Iran's national or territorial integrity. Can you talk about the treatment of these two ethnic minorities by the central government Also, how effective will the regime's propaganda be in driving a wedge 
among the protesters who seem to be emphatic about maintaining a united front against the regime? Well, I think it's necessary to emphasize that there are many ethnic minorities in Iran that are all to varying extents oppressed, but there are three among them that I think are probably more oppressed. There are the Kurds, Baluchis, and Arabs. In Kurdish areas, as well as in Baluchistan, and, and as well as in Arab areas, there's always much more dissident and also much more movements for autonomy or separation. And I don't really think that these movements do not exist. Uh, of course, they exist. And, but actually, for that reason, the Islamic Republic has always looks at them and treats them very differently from the way that they treat people in Tehran. It's a security state, Islamic Republic. And well, that means that they're always in a, a status of insecurity. With a widespread protest like this happens, it's obvious that they are very concerned and they want to uh, kind of preemptively suppress whatever ethnic uprising that might uh, happen in Kurdistan and Balochistan. This is one side they are genuinely concerned but the other side is probably more important one is that, well, they know that they have to somehow ideologically justify the suppression, and they know that they have to somehow scare other people of coming out to the streets. Well, I think that the best way to do both is by labeling the movement as a separatist movement, which has been funded or supported or at least provocated by separatist groups who are themselves kind of stooges of imperialism and, and Israel in the region, etc., etc. This way they gain actually, as I said, multiple benefits. On one hand, they can justify the suppression. On the other hand, they can actually raise the stakes. They can make it much more costly for people who want to go out in the streets in Tehran. I think this is an old game. This is nothing new. Uh, very unfortunate what has been happening in Kurdistan and Balochistan. But I think in this case, the protests are much more widespread. These type of tricks, I don't think that they'll be effective at all. In the past few years, Iran has witnessed significant labor unrest that involves strikes, sit-ins, and other forms of industrial action. But because independent labor unions are banned by the Iranian regime, it's extremely difficult to create a national labor movement. Given such limitations, is there any possibility of strikes in key sectors of the economy in tandem with the current street politics? Here we're talking about the transportation sector or oil and gas. Well, there are some hopes, but I think that everyone should be a little bit cautious about those hopes. And the reason is the fact that you said is the political suppression has made it very hard to have a nationwide labor organization or have some coordinated nationwide labor strikes or uprisings. We have heard some, I think, hopeful news that there have been some strikes in Khuzestan, in the old rich areas of Khuzestan, among old workers, but it's still too soon to say. And if you look at the history of 1979 revolution, you see that a turning point in the fight against the Shah was when the workers joined the movement and they basically incapacitated the suppressive apparatus of the Shah. But that labor movement was much more organized and they were able to hold on to the strike for a relatively long time. I don't really think that today this is possible because the organization of the labor movement is much weaker and the tide of suppression is still much stronger. Those strikes came at towards the end of the Ancien Regime, the Pahlavi Regime in 1979. They came in late 1978. 
And they came after months and months of street protests. So that brings me to this question of what should be our expectations? I hear all this rhetoric that people are expecting some sort of an immediate result. They expect this regime to collapse very quickly. And to me, it seems like the balance of forces does not allow that at this point. They expect Mm -hmm. the regime to evaporate in the next, I don't know, weeks or months. First off, is that realistic? And secondly, what are the um, negative impact of such expectations? I also think that it's not realistic. And that's also something that I find very worrisome. I think it's necessary to distinguish between two different outcomes or consequences or ramification of this movement. This movement, I think, will have some immediate or short-term gains, and that will be, I think, on the issue of hijab and generally on the issue of social freedoms. We have got to a point of no return. Iran will look different today than Iran before September 17th. But this is only one side, and this is actually a great achievement. But in terms of achieving political change, overthrowing the regime, having a revolution, etc., etc., as you mentioned, I think people are a little bit too excited and they, they jump to the conclusion too quick that this regime is collapsing because the protests are everywhere. I think if one looks at the history of revolution or history of social movement, they can easily observe that only social movements can achieve uh, some political change, even if it's only like some reform. Only social women that uh, can achieve political goals is to some extent organized. And they have ideology, they have organization, they have leadership, they have a shared prospect. And none of these very, very crucial factors exist among the protesters today. I think the protesters should not be disappointed by this fact, but that should be like a sobering fact for them. That should actually be a warning for them that if they want this movement to continue and if they want this movement to end up in an actual political change in the country, they should consider this movement as a first step in a very long road and they should be wary of taking the next step in the right way. They should know that organization is important. They should know that having a shared prospect and ideology, a a kind of a view about what they want to do, how they want this society to look like after the Islamic Republic. A vision. Yes, exactly, a vision. I'm also a little bit worried that people are so enthusiastic about what they are achieving today that they are failing to take these very, very serious questions into into considerations. And this question of um, leadership, these protests have started spontaneously, given the challenges facing grassroots mobilization under an authoritarian regime that you mentioned, where opposition political parties are banned and media is ostensibly controlled by the regime and its loyalists, and the activities of civil society groups are severely hampered. Given these challenges, what do we know about the leadership of the current protests and the methods through which the grassroots activists mobilize? Related to that question is under an authoritarian regime, how possible is it to really organize, create a lasting social movement, something that can be sustained, something that cannot be completely infiltrated and crushed by the police? We also have the case of Kurdistan, where the the grassroots groups seem to organize much more effectively there. First of all, I, I think it's fair to say that this movement doesn't have any leadership which is a weakness, but given the, the current status of political figures in Iran, it's not probably a bad thing that there is no leadership because I don't know anyone who could properly lead this movement. This is a very, very unorganized and a spontaneous 
movement. And it's a challenge for the, those who are in the movements to turn it into an organized movement. Of course, there are organizations here too, but they are very local. As far as I know, there are a lot of uh, neighborhood committees, people who basically are each other's neighbors and they know each other. They talk to each other, they coordinate to do something locally. And as I mentioned, I think earlier, and, and many of these unrest and, and clashes between police and the people are at very, very small local level. It happens in a neighborhood, in the street, between 10 or 20 people who are gathered and, and some security forces. As I said, it's a challenge for those who are involved in these movements to make it much more coordinated, much more connected to other local movements that are happening across the country. And that's a big challenge. I think here I can somehow connect this question to the second question that you asked. How is that possible to organize under dictatorship, basically? And I think it's an important question because a lot of people who think that organization is not necessary for toppling a regime, they start by arguing as such. They say that, well, under dictatorship, you cannot have political organization. Thus, you need to topple the dictatorship to have political organization. I think it's the wrong argument and the wrong kind of direction of causality here. Democracy doesn't create a space for political organization. It's the opposite. It's the other way around. And of course, it's hard. And if I knew how to do that, I would have definitely told you to do that. But yeah. it's not impossible. And there are numerous historical examples, both in Iran and elsewhere in the world, that people were able to organize under brutal dictatorship. Like, let's talk about Iran for a second. Like, uh, Iran was under a dictatorship from 1953 to 1979. But as you know, in this 25-year period, the political opposition to the Shah was never silent. And they were actually very active inside the country. The nationalists, the supporters of Mossadegh, the, the so-called National Front, the leftists, the two-day party, and later the, the guerrilla organization, and also the Islamists, the supporters of Khomeini. They were all operating under a regime that was maybe less brutal than this regime, but it doesn't really change the reality that it was still a, a police state. So maybe the people who think that it's impossible to organize people under dictatorship, they have to look back at their own history in Iran. And as I said, there are many, many other examples across the globe. If you look at the Russian revolution, it was also done under the Tsarist regime. If you look at the German Revolution of 1918, for example, it was also done under the dictatorship of the German Reich. So there were many, many examples of political organization under authoritarian regime. Definitely much harder, but it's not impossible. And unfortunately, in my view, that's the only way to go. One of the cases that come to my mind is the mobilization in Sudan. Um, yes. That was quite a successful campaign. The regime's base of support seems to be evaporating quickly. This is a regime that as a result of the populist movement came to power. It enjoyed support for a long time among certain sections of the urban poor and among traditional middle class, petty bourgeoisie, and probably among the youth in the rural areas for some time. But you can see that it is losing its space of support. And this was visible in the abysmally low turnout when the regime called for the counter-protest on two different days following this new wave of protests a couple of weeks ago. Can you talk about the significance of this shift and its implications? Does it mean that from now on, the regime will have to almost exclusively rely on its coercive apparatus to quell protests? Yes, it was significant. And I think it was probably also a red flag for the regime itself. 
I think in the short term, it still can have both forces actually involved, both coercive force and also the support. I think they were unaware of the shrinking of the support. And I think that shrinking of support actually comes as a result of their policy. As I said, Iranian regime in the last actually 30 years have taken a kind of a economically neoliberal policy. But that has kind of accelerated in the last 10 years. And the impact of sanction has also been much more felt by the people from the lower classes. And I think maybe a turning point was in 2019 when they increased the gas prices with three times and they brutally killed people on the street. The Supreme Leader came to the TV and said that they dispossessed Mustafafin, the people that the Islamic Republic always claimed to be the government of. They say, well, the dispossessed are not the poor. This is a, this is a misinterpretation. That means something else. So I think they were seeing the reality that they have to change their quasi-populist ideology because economically they cannot afford it anymore. But they were not really probably wary of the fact, kind of sort of an obvious fact, that if they, you do so, you also lose a lot of support. I think they were not very worried about this fact or were not even wary of it because they did not think that in the next few years, there will be times that they have to rely on those people again. But this is, I think, a kind of a maybe wake-up call for them. This is a red flag. How likely is a rift among the ranks of these coercive forces, given what you just said and how pivotal their role would be in terms of maintaining a balance of power favoring the regime? Well, I think it's not very likely because, as I said, they know that this probably the only tool that they have at their disposal now. And I think they make sure that they keep it safe and guaranteed. And I think it's not very hard to do that in an economic situation when everyone is hungry. If you just guarantee good economic benefits to the people who are loyal to and people who are willing to go out on the streets and kill people and suppress people on your behalf, you can actually have the support. And I think... uh, the structure of Iranian security forces, and especially IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guardian Corps, has been designed as such to prevent this type of mutinies. And for that reason, I think in the short term, that's not very likely to see that they, they side with people. Let me ask you the final question. The Iranian protesters are distanced from the institutional power. Given the absence of defined organization and clear leadership, what is the outlook for such protests in Iran? Can such protest movements evolve into a social movement and a national bloc that can be sustained to ultimately dislodge the political structure? Or is it more likely that such protest movements will morph into an insurrectionary movement, launching perhaps an untimely frontal attack on the state? Well, I think it's less likely that this movement becomes kind of an insurrectionary movement. I think the possibility of this movement turning into an organized movement certainly exists. But as I said, that really depends on on the political act of the people who are involved inside. There is a third option that is most likely, that the social movement turns itself into a movement of civil disobedience and sustains itself as a movement of civil disobedience. Like the issue of hijab, and I think that may be the central achievement, but as I mentioned earlier, nowadays you hear from people from Iran, if I'm actually from different parts of Iran, I've heard, that people just do not wear hijab. Women just do not put the scarf on. And there is nothing that the government can do because they cannot go and, and arrest everyone. And actually they know that if they want to do that, it's very dangerous for them because they are playing with fire again. 
normally I would say a couple of years, but this movement has been so fast and so surprising that I want to be a little bit more vague in the time frame that I'm giving. So in the next few months or few years, I think you would see gradually that hijab is de facto removed. And that's a big achievement. And that's a still a social movement. That's an, a spontaneous social movement that cannot change things politically, but can change things at the social level. And I think that can also happen with other social issues. Whether that can become a political change or not is an open question, but it really depends on the conduct of the people who are involved on the ground, whether they will go towards becoming more organized, they go towards becoming, having a much more clear vision of the future or not. So you think this issue with mandatory hijab or mandatory veiling is not reversible, What people, what women in particular have accomplished is not reversible. Is it possible that when the protests actually subside and mm-hmm. uh, the regime will come back and enforce this. We have had a, the experience of a regime that would ease up on certain requirements in terms of dress code and others, social behavior and individual behavior. And then they would come back with vengeance. They would start cracking down and making sure that everybody is in line with their agenda. I think it's very unlikely because, I mean, let's walk through it together to see why I think it's unlikely. Suppose that this movement just subsides tomorrow. And suppose that people go back to normal life. And suppose that even people do not dare to remove their scarves again. Even if the movement wants to impose the compulsory hijab the way that they used to, I think they have to face the very dangerous uh, reality that every day can become a day of turmoil and protest. Because this was not the first time there was a clash between a woman and a morality police. There have been many more. But this time, just tragic death sparked the movement. But I can easily imagine that two months from now, there's another clash between morality police and some women in some part of Iran. And that could easily turn into another uprising. And I think if you were one of the authorities in Iran, it's just very difficult not to see this fact. And especially, as I said, because they already were warned that this might be happening. They just ignore the warning. That's why I think it's impossible for them to turn things back to the situation that existed before September 17th. And I think that's the, probably the greatest achievement of this movement. And I think that can be also furthered in other areas, whether you can call it social freedom, freedom of you know, wearing a job, freedom of lifestyle and everything. And I think it will become gradually harder for them to enforce the social codes that they want. And it's harder because the only other way that they have is suppression. And I think they have tried suppression and they, they saw that it failed and it failed miserably and it actually cost them a lot. And I think they will come to the point that they cannot continue that they have to basically accept this reality. This would definitely be a watershed moment in the life of the the Iranian regime in many ways, because if history is any guide, the regime generally digs its heels, uses repression to quell the protests, and does not offer any concessions to such protest movements. Their thinking has been that if we budge, then people are going to ask for more. And that's the path to our downfall. They actually say openly that we learned this lesson from the uh, previous regime, the way the Shah's regime was dislodged. Yes, but I think here they they could be a little bit smarter and 
maybe they can dissect some demands from others and they can give some demands to people in order to not give the others the other demands it is likely that they see that they have to make concessions but obviously if you want to concede on everything they will be gone so they have to make a deal of concede on some issues and some factors in order to prevent concessions on other fronts. That's going to be a new day. I mean, the regime has built its credentials on this idea of being the leading Islamic community in the world. And the clear manifestation of that has always been in public, or in public view has been the way women look, the way they dress. So that would be quite a day, obviously. Nima Tutkaboni is a PhD student in sociology at John Hopkins University. He was a student activist in Iran during the 2000s and helped lead an organization called Students for Equality and Freedom. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.